Welcome to the Exodus Cry podcast, where we have honest conversations around exploitation, trafficking, sexual culture, and justice. Today we have Jessica Kay, a survivor leader and advocate, sharing her story with us. Jessica is a member of the Nevada Coalition to Prevent the Sexual Exploitation of Children and is currently a clinical social work intern for A Better Tomorrow. Jessica has dedicated her life to fighting against the injustice of sex trafficking, and we hope you enjoy listening to her story. Jessica, thank you for coming on our podcast. We're so excited to have you here with us. Um, I last met with you in Vegas. We did a screening of Buying Her together, and I was just really moved by all the perspective you shared um, concerning your knowledge of this issue of sex trafficking. And I wondered, starting out, if you could just tell us a little bit about where that knowledge came from. So I'm a survivor of sex trafficking, domestic violence, homelessness, and suicide. Um, I moved to Las Vegas when I was, I think I was around 22, just had my son. Uh, I'm from a really small town in Iowa, um, lived a very sheltered farm life. Um, and so after graduating with my associate's degree, I decided to move to Las Vegas. My mom lived here. I had some other family here and I just needed a change. Um, I got here or I got to Vegas and I had never seen like lights and culture mm. and different humans and just, it was really exciting to me. Mm -hmm. But the one thing I didn't know was the dangers, right? The dangers in the corners and I didn't know what sex trafficking was, so therefore I didn't know to protect myself from it. Um, so I eventually was like in one unhealthy relationship after another. Uh, I had a really crappy childhood, and so right as I grew up, I was looking to heal that inner child and looking for love, and I just found myself in really unhealthy relationships. And eventually I was in one, and I ended up losing everything because of that relationship. My house, my car, I had to have my son go live with his dad because I couldn't take care of him. Um, and that's when I met my trafficker. Mm. So he, you know, I needed a place to live. He got me a place to live. I needed food. I needed shelter. And all of those things were provided. Um, but I was under the impression that he was my boyfriend. So I really had no idea you know, what was about to happen. Um, he groomed me for about, I'm going to guess around six to eight months. Because they don't come out with a human trafficker uniform on. Exactly. Right. <laughs> and even if they did, I really didn't know about trafficking or even pimps. Right. Prostitution. I am from literally a small farming town. Right. So that's not, no, nobody ever talked about that. Right. Um, so I had no idea. What did the grooming process look like? Just, I think it was mostly mind manipulation. At that point, it wasn't um, abusive. There was no signs of like red flags, right? So it's more love bombing. It's whatever I needed, he took care of it. You know, I would go on job interviews and, and was, you know, just trying to get myself together so I could get my son back. But he took care of everything I needed. So, of course... I'm in love with him. I'm thinking this is going to be great. Everything's going to be okay. I'm going to get my kid back. Um, and then one day he picked me up from a job interview and we were driving up Tropicana 
um, towards the Orleans, which that part of Tropicana in Las Vegas is known as a track. Um, but even at that time, I <laughs> no idea. Um, and so I asked him, like, what are we what are we doing? And he was like, oh, my friend has some work for you to do. Okay, so we pulled into the Orleans and this girl opened the car door and um, I'm like, what are we doing? And he put his foot to my upper thigh and kicked me out of the car. And he said, make daddy proud. And I just stood there um, trying not to cry because definitely like what the hell is going on? Um, Scared, dumbfounded. I don't even know. Probably every emotion you can think of was going through and she kind of picked me up and dusted me off and we went into a bathroom in the Orleans and then she taught me uh what we would call the game and told me what was going to happen next and you were what 24 at this time yeah about that yeah so your whole world must be spinning at this point you think this person's your boyfriend you think they're interested in a relationship with you and now they're putting you into a situation where you're expected to prostitute. Yeah. And I still wasn't even really fully understanding, right? Like what is happening or, okay, even if I was, I don't even know really if I was conceptualizing like, okay, I have to make money to pay him back. I don't even know, you know, what my thought process was. Right. Um, so she walked me to the street and she waved down a car for me um, and she negotiated that price. Um, and so then she whispered in my ear, she was like, you have to get the money first. When you're done, you meet back here. Um, and so I got in the car and I will never forget that car. It was like a broken down, beat up pickup truck and the guy clearly just got off work smelled like alcohol and cigarettes and um, we pulled into a back alley and he gave me the money and I performed sex acts and when I was done I was walking back to the Orleans and my traffickers sitting there watching us and collecting the cash I had to make $2,500 that night the first night first night it took me about 10 hours one client after the next yeah uh, and was it was there a price per client or did it vary from person to person it was we had a quota of typically $2,500 a night and so it yeah you just take yeah. whatever you can, you get, can get and hope that you can get you know, that quickly. Now, especially when you're on the track, you're doing literally whatever. But when we moved into casinos, then sometimes it would just be, you know, you could get that from one client or buyer or John or whatever word we want to use. Right. Right. Or it would take multiple. Right. And, and as this is happening, um, are you, are, are you, drinking to kind of numb the experience are you are drugs involved um how do you get through even just that first night and the shock of what's happening i'm falling I think it's like, through this trap for me door. it was a lot of it was disassociation and just 
disconnecting from myself and my body. Um, that's something I still struggle with today, just mm. being able to disassociate. Um, but I did drink and I did smoke a lot of weed at the time. I never fell into drug addiction or harder drugs because growing up, my mom had was addicted and people around me that I loved were addicted. And so I was always scared of like anything harder than marijuana. Mm-hmm. I think that saved my life to be, to be honest, being afraid because yes, drugs are part of the lifestyle, right? As this is happening, it's what's, what's keeping you getting through the experience? Are you afraid of your quote unquote boyfriend slash now realizes a pimp or what was kind of so at the time, I didn't rec- recognize myself as a victim. So I do want to say that. Like, uh-huh. had you met me when I was in the streets, I would have probably convinced you it was my choice. Mm-hmm. Um, but the manipulation and the abuse that was going on behind the scenes um, obviously would fall under force fraud and coercion. So behind the scenes, after that happened, I moved into what we would call a stable or you know, I lived with um, the girl that he dropped me off with out of the Orleans, um, and we lived together now. So dynamic switch, yeah. Um, there was no food kept in the house, so we had to work to eat, right? We had to make money in order to eat. Um, he didn't beat us on a regular basis, um, but he would strangle us. He would tie us to the beds. Um, he would tie us to each other. He was really notorious for separating us from each other, which and causing friction. But that's like your only person. And so that's really traumatizing when you're not getting along or can't talk to or can't see that one person you're with all the time. He would um, hold us at gunpoint. Um, he would sit outside and take pictures of my kid and send them to me and hers as well. Right. So threatening to hurt our families. Um, and one time he had me robbed by two pimps and raped in a parking lot of a hotel. Um, just trying to, you know, keep me in line. The other thing was brothels. He would always threaten to put us in brothels and he had three other girls in a brothel and the idea of that threat was like if you don't comply here I'm gonna make it much worse yeah because now you can't see your kid on Saturday afternoon when I allow you to because now you're you know in northern Nevada and with brothels you have to stay certain lengths of time then you get to leave and then you get to come back right so there's you're basically stuck there in brothels so Yeah, so that was one of our threats. So during this initial phase, how do you mentally reconcile with what's happening? Like, what is that transition like from, I'm in this loving relationship with this person who's deeply interested in me, to now I'm in this home where I'm expected to prostitute for this person who I sort of now understand as a pimp, but not really even having much of an understanding what that is. I mean, how, 
I'm just trying to wrap my mind around. What I don't was, know what if I ever like. wrapped my mind yeah. around it or if it was more about survival. Um, yeah. And don't get me wrong, he would still love Bamas, right? So yes, there's threats, forest fraud, coercion, all of that happening, but there's also flowers on the table and a shopping spree and a vacation for the weekend, right? So you're you're going from trauma to love, trauma to love, trauma to love, and you're on this like perpetuated cycle of confusion maybe is the word i don't know i've never broke this down like this before right, so right. i'm kind of thinking about it you know in real time but um yeah i would say there's a lot of confusion and then i grew up in such an unhealthy household and in an unhealthy environment from a young age what do i know about love right so really preying on those vulnerabilities yeah Yeah, I think so. I think I was just, I think we were both in survival mode. You know, the girl I was with as well, right? She had kids. And then you just think about like, well, I have to provide. I don't have a job, right? I have to pay these bills. How was the game explained to you? The game meaning that's the terminology that's used to describe the world of pimping and prostitution. Yeah. Um, which is really all trafficking Yes. Um, and the pop culture understanding the term that's thrown around is pimping and prostituting. Um, how is that lifestyle explained to you from this woman? I don't think it was like a real in-depth explanation. Mm -hmm. I think if I remember correctly that night, it was really more like, okay, so here's what we're going to do, right? You are going to perform sex acts. Uh, you're going to get paid for him. Um, I don't even remember telling. I don't remember her telling me like to bring the money back, but he was sitting right there in the parking lot. Like, and the direction we were going, I had to cross right in front of him. No matter, no matter what, if I wanted to get out of there. So I don't remember her telling me anything about like giving the money to him or anything like that. I do remember meeting him after my first John or buyer. And what was that like? Cause now he's your boyfriend. He kicks you out of the car. This person tells you, you need to go do this. That happens. Now you guys come back. He has a different countenance. It's a different energy. Um, I don't remember what he said to me, but I remember he hugged me. And he told me it was going to be okay. So creating the trauma, but then also presenting himself as the comforter of that trauma. It must have been really confusing as a 20 something, early 20 year old. Yeah. And that's how I think we become trauma bonded to our traffickers. Can you elaborate on that? The idea of like love and abuse, love and abuse, love and abuse. And we also bond over whatever childhood traumas we have, right? And so um, I've never really explained trauma bonding out loud. <laughs> yeah. No, that's helpful. Um, I, I think that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. And so it becomes this really toxic entanglement or relationship, right? Because there's some attachment there. Yeah. Strangely. Yeah. 
Yeah, through all and of the... Yeah, you survive the abuse by longing for the love. Yeah. Internally, as this, as you enter into this life, what's, what's happened? What do you feel? Is there... Um, I think at some point you get comfortable with it. It becomes very normalized. And this is where we see, you know, I want to do this. I love this. Right. Right. That mentality. Um, because had you met me in the life, I would have totally convinced you that this was my choice and I was happy and I love what I'm doing. And that cover narrative is almost in a way helps you survive the experience because you're telling not just to the clients, but to yourself as well. Correct. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. It helps. It also helps on the back end, though. It perpetuates the narrative that prostitution is a choice. Right. And prostitution is only a choice when there's no other choices. Mm. Right. And so that hurts us in the anti-trafficking movement, mm -hmm. especially in Vegas. Right. We are in a city uh, that's fueled by toxic behavior right? right gambling sex drugs alcohol right and so how long does this the trajectory of this continue for uh i was trafficked for about 18 months okay um and then i went to jail um and so from jail i ran um into another unhealthy relationship but it was really I don't know that I thought about it, right? I knew that this was potentially an unhealthy relationship and would maintain that because I was in a relationship with him before or continued this lifestyle. Um, but the relationship I went into, I really loved him. Um, and so they had a conversation. They handled it. Hmm. I never saw my trafficker after I ran from jail. Hmm. So this man actually had a conversation with your trafficker. Yes. Do you know what transaction no, happened there? I've never asked. <laughs> and was the new boyfriend also a trafficker? No. 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 Okay. But it was not a healthy relationship. Okay. And um, as I'm growing and as I'm healing, the one thing I will say, and I don't want to stay on the topic of him too long, but the one thing I will say is as I'm healing and growing, I recognize that we were both unhealthy, right? I'm recovering from all this trauma or even trying to process. And I also never told him what really happened because at that time I didn't even recognize, right? That I was a victim. Mm -hmm. um, and so two unhealthy people together creates a really toxic uh, relationship and I stayed in that relationship. It was also violent. It was just really not healthy. And I stayed in that relationship for eight years until I tried to commit suicide. Hmm. It was after that, that I, so I went into, um, a psychiatric facility in Las Vegas on a 72 hour hold. And that 72 hours definitely saved my life because one, that's the lowest of the low for me, right? Um, being taken out of my home in front of my children in an ambulance, um, being told I would be arrested if I did not uh, go willingly. Um, 
So shame, humiliation, all the things, scared, all the things. Um, And so I went into a psych facility and for 72 hours, nobody asked me why. Why would you want to kill yourself? Why would you want to hurt yourself? Instead, it was like, here's some medication um, and we will release you back into the same toxic environment that really led you here in the first place, as well as giving you medication. I tried to overdose. Doesn't. (laughs) So in that 72 hours is when I kind of decided, one, I have to change, not just for myself, but I had two children that did not ask for this life. Um, And two, I wanted to become a social worker because at that moment I hated social workers. I was like, I want to be the change. Mm. Um, So after that, I uh, enrolled. I got my bachelor's degree from UNLV in early childhood education. And then I got my master's from the University of Southern California um, in social work. Wow, that's amazing. Thank you. So you could see that the help you needed really wasn't there. Right. And that motivated you like somebody's got to step into this situation to actually help people. Yeah. And my children. Right. Right. Um, I think they were the fuel because I also recognized like I'm putting them through the same type of toxicity that I grew up in. Mm. And I want to be different. Yeah. And I know that there's other ways to live because it's not like my whole family's toxic. (laughs) So I've seen happy people and I knew what that looked like. I knew there was other ways to live, but my children needed to see that. Not only did they need it, they deserved it. Right. Earlier when you mentioned that um, the idea of prostitution as a choice only from the perspective that there were no other choices. Can you elaborate on that? So something I've been thinking about um, recently, and I think ultimately, why aren't we talking about why people are following, falling in the river, right? We're just pulling them out of stream. And that's an anti-trafficking movement on the whole, right? We're pulling them out of the stream, but why are they falling in? Right. And that's the question we need to be asking. And ultimately, it's lack of resources, lack of education, um, foster care systems, right? Our systems are broken. Right. Um, And so prostitution becomes a choice. When there, because there's no other choices. We still have to survive. We still have to feed our kids. We still have to, right? The other thing is sometimes it's normalized in families because it's generational, right? So, um, or a lot of adult victims were child victims. Yeah, that's another thing that doesn't get talked about enough. There's a lot of rallying around opposing child trafficking and at the exclusion of anything to do with adult trafficking, not realizing that adult trafficking victims were in most cases first child trafficking victims who still need help. Yeah. And even if we don't know if they're child, if they were child victims, we do know for most adult victims, our ACEs score. So adverse childhood experiences is usually through the roof. Mm. So not healing from childhood trauma, right? Right. Whether that's actually trafficking or not. 
could be sexual abuse, could be physical, emotional, whatever. In your experience of getting to know other women who were in this trafficking system, would you say that that was something common that you observed among them? So when I was in? Yeah, like that, that these were people whose childhoods were compromised and experienced Yeah, childhood. I mean, we got to know each other, the ones that were, you know, we worked with on a regular basis. Sometimes we would talk about those things, but not all the time, right? So, um, but many of us had at least young adult similar stories, mm -hmm. right? For whatever reason, we were vulnerable when we met so-and-so. But the other thing is none of us were really conscious of whether this was a choice or not. Mm -hmm. I don't think, because why wouldn't we have band together? <laughs> right, right. I know that I wasn't. I was very much like, I believe this is my choice. Right. It wasn't until I was sitting in a violence against women's class at USC and we were talking about trafficking. And that's ultimately, I had a breakdown and a breakthrough in class, really understanding this is what had happened to me. Mm. Oh, wow. Interesting. It was powerful. Yeah, that's so powerful. He provided the framing for you to be able to interpret your own experience and go, whoa, I thought I'd chosen all this. Actually, it was all these other factors. And I kind of just bubbled over. It was like, I, I think what happened was somebody asked a question and, you know, I don't know if this is verbatim, but something along like, why don't they leave, right? The same kind right, of right. thing we hear with domestic violence. And I just kind of, it just... It just overflowed. I was crying. The whole class was crying. Um, but it was also very healing. Um, and my professor, it was a woman at the time, she was super supportive in framing the conversation and making sure that I was okay. And I think that's when I was like, yes, I'm where I need to be. And this is what I want to do. Hi guys, this is Benji Nolo from Exodus Cry, and I'm just so excited to announce the release of my new book called uh, Raised on Porn. This is something that I've been working on for the past 10 years and just uh, excited to get it into your hands to help deepen your understanding of porn, its impact on our world, uh, on our lives, and what we can do to heal from it. And so I think you're going to find this to be an extremely insightful and helpful resource, whether you are somebody who is struggling with porn consumption, whether you're a parent and, uh, and wanting to help uh, have better conversations with your kids and protect your kids, uh, whether you're an educator, whether you're uh, in a relationship and and, and this has in some way affected your relationship, I think this, this book's gonna be a super helpful resource. I wrote it in such a way um, to uh, be that resource that I wish was there when I started into this. So it's comp both comprehensive and in-depth. And if you're looking for a one-stop shop, so to speak, I think this is that book that you can get a hold of that's really going to give you the big picture and, a, and an in-depth way of how porn is affecting our world and us as individuals and our relationships and our children. And again, what we can do to, to heal, to find freedom, to uh, and to, to really to to better our society. And so um, I encourage you, get a hold of this book, Raised on Porn, and share it with a friend as well.
Thanks so much. It's crazy to think how powerful our minds are at doing those sort of gymnastics to survive extreme trauma. Like, um, you know, disassociating in some way from the experienced, coming up with some rationalizing narrative for how I got here and... Oh, I was great at that. Like rationalizing, like, well, I needed money. Or like, it's exciting. Do you know what I got to do last night? I got to have dinner at this fancy restaurant. Like, I was really good at doing that. Yeah, it's just, it's really interesting to think about like how powerful our minds are in that regard. That's part of the challenge people talk about ending trafficking. And there's this perception that if we just get enough commandos together, you know, something awesome will be done while trafficking will be ended and people will be rescued. And so much of the work of addressing trafficking is not that straightforward. It's not that straightforward from the standpoint of outreach to people who are in it because of those deeply embedded psychological patterns of thought and constructive narratives and um, all those things. It's not that straightforward from the standpoint of the underlying facilitating culture that's creating this whole reality in the first place. There's so much complexity to the issue of trafficking. And um, I really appreciate that you have pursued the path of social work um, because it's it really puts you on the ground, on the front lines, dealing person to person with these individuals. And I wish more people could see the value of that. Like in my experience of fighting trafficking, the amount of people, ideas coming to me that are centered around, I know this Navy SEAL, I, you know, or I was a former commando of some sort, like this whole militarized idea of how we're going to, I, I don't know that I've ever had a person come to me and be like, man, be amazing to be a social worker, to go sit with those people in their pain and help them work through the trauma till they begin to understand what happened. Like that does not happen Yeah, at all. And the crazy thing is that's what we need. Cause right now uh, a lot of anti-trafficking is kind of like, we just put them in a house and they're fine. It's fine. We just remove them from the situation, put them in a nice shiny house and now they're good. Well, that's a lot of times too, the, the resources they're giving us are six months well, what the heck am I going to do when the resources run out? I'm going to go back if I have to, because then it goes back to survival. If I don't have any food, money, and can't pay the rent to the nice, shiny apartment that they just put me in, I still have to survive. Right. So then our brains are wired for what's comfortable and familiar, even if it's unhealthy for us. So that's why we go back. Mm. And that's why there's such a high recidivism rate yes. for people who coming out of prostitution who go back to it. And then the culture plays into that as well, because then we blame them because we still live in this pull yourself up by the bootstraps mentality in our culture. Mm-hmm. The, 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 um, illusion of the self-made person, yeah. um, all of this 
stuff factors into it. You know, we internalize a lot of the motivational speakers that we hear in our culture and not realizing how much of either the success or brokenness of humanity happens as a result of so many other things. Um, And so the importance of social work, of getting into a position, having a trained perspective to really work one-on-one with these individuals and, and the systems that can support them. I'm going to be honest. I don't know that my social work degree actually helps me work with victims any better. I think what's incredible is when survivors come together, like we heal, we help each other heal. We see each other. We, our trauma is similar, even if it's different, even if it looks different. Um, it's a beautiful thing. That's one of my favorite things about doing this work is is meeting other courageous survivors and learning from them just as much as they are learning from me. I think my social work degree helps on the backside mm-hmm. of trying to help organizations um, as a survivor leader, but I'm already out as a survivor and that's not always... Um, even with my degree, right? I think we struggle in the movement to recognize survivors as the lived experience experts still. Many organizations, and I have a master's degree, and I'm like, my knowledge is just as valuable from to the survivor who didn't pursue education for her own reasons. Mm-hmm. She has valuable knowledge too. Mm-hmm. And so I don't think my degree helps me work with victims and survivors. Because I think that's natural after you survive that. I think you just kind of know how to. <laughs> Do you think it's important to have people in the system, though, who have that kind of credibility to to be able to kind of. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, I so many people have helped me. Right. And I think one thing if we're going to talk about what can you do in the anti-trafficking movement to help victims and survivors is see them. I became this person and got to where I am right now because people believed in me. Mm-hmm. People gave me chances. People put me in rooms. People paid me for my knowledge. <laughs> and I would be like, what? Right? And so I was able to find myself. And whether p- survivors want to work in the anti-trafficking movement or not, that's what they need. If they're an artist, put them in an art gallery. Right, right buy their artwork. Don't ask them to donate it for an auction, right? Support them because we lost our identity in the streets being trafficked, right? We're carrying shame and pain and all these things. And human connection is the most powerful healing agent we have. So see us and hear us so we can heal. Right. And I think that's one of the most powerful thing people can do in this movement is provide survivors opportunities. See them, hear them, bring them to the table, pay them. Now you, you, the context of your experience in trafficking, that exploitation occurred in Las Vegas. You're still there. Is that difficult to to work in the same city where you went through all of that? Are there triggers there? How do you navigate that? Yeah. There's still triggers, obviously. 
Um, but I've done a lot of work, so that helps. Um, I also think my career has helped me lose the fear because, and this is going to sound really arrogant and that's not how I'm trying to allow it to sound, but it's like, I don't fear my trafficker or the people who have hurt me because I'm like, I can just call so-and-so at Metro on their cell phone. Mm. Like I can, I have access to a lawyer now. Like people will believe me if you come after me again or if Mm. you hurt me again. Right. 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 So I think that's helped me with the fear. Right. Because, um, but of course I can walk into a casino and get triggered. I, I can't and don't know when that will happen. Um, but I do have things in place, right. I typically will not go to the strip alone. I don't like to walk to my car alone. So if I'm meeting you there, I don't like to walk to my car alone. Um, I am hyper aware of everything going on. Um, yeah, all the time. Um, you know, so there's certain, there's certain things. I know my trafficker is still there. Um, but again, I don't have as much fear. Now, if I actually ran into him, I don't know what would happen, but I don't have as much fear. Cause I feel like people know me, people love me, people support me and I can call people where before I didn't have that. Right. Right. You have a better support system now. Mm -hmm. I was very isolated when I was being trafficked. And so I think that's one thing too. My kids are incredible, right? My son, I just moved him to Nebraska to play basketball. My daughter just started high school. Um, They have their friends, their family. um, And being a single parent, you need a tribe. So it's more, my tribe is here. My tribe is in Vegas. Right, right. Um, So I don't. I do know I'm I'm ready to leave. I'm ready to leave some, you know, I don't want to live somewhere where all my trauma happened forever. I want to know what it's like to to be free, which is why I love traveling because every time somebody pays me to go somewhere then I get to experience other parts of the world. Um but yeah, I mean that's how I navigate it. And then I really I'm introverted. I stay at home. I'm like I, I hang with my kids like my kid. I'm at every basketball game. I don't care. Right. Um, both my kids play ball. So, um, I, yeah. I had this experience after interviewing a couple of survivors from the Vegas trafficking industry, otherwise known as high class escorting, um, where I went back to Vegas again and just kind of going through the hotels, the casinos, the parking garages, saw this whole reality happening in front of me where before I, th- I would have thought, oh, that girl's just, you know, dressed up in a cock, randomly dressed up in a cocktail dress and, and, you know, whatever, however many inch stiletto shoes because she's going for a night on the town it suddenly became clear to me, oh, that person's going to a call or seeing somebody come out and they're in tears before I would have thought, oh, she got in a fight with her boyfriend and then realizing, oh no, this person just came out of a traumatic call or being at a craps table, walking by a craps table and seeing, you know, this guy who looks like, how did you end up with her? (laughs) And like, oh, you're paying to have. So this 
idea came up in me of the slaves among us. The idea that people who go to Vegas, they're all kind of just going through the motions of showing up to see the big water show, the big whatever show that it is, go gamble in the casino, go out for a night on the town, are mostly totally unaware of the plight of the reality for so many who are there that are caught up in this trafficking system. I actually describe it in, as like different levels of reality in within Vegas, right? So like the average human walks into a casino and probably recognizes that that's a bartender and a security guard, but then everybody else is just in Vegas having fun, right? When somebody who's been in the in the life or has survived the streets of Vegas, whether regardless of its trafficking or not, you walk into a casino and you see the working staff, right? So um, security guards, bartenders, all of that, right? You see all of them. And then you see a lot of times we can recognize and spot the drug dealers and the pimps, right? Um, and the the girls who are being trafficked, right? The victims, then we can see them. And then everybody else is just having fun. Everybody else right, is right. like 100% oblivious to what is happening around them. Um, it's a really bizarre experience yeah. being in Vegas. The other thing is like, prostitution is normalized, right? Right. And as much as we know about trafficking and as much as we have worked to try to change and shift perspectives, it's still part of our culture mm -hmm. and it's, it's normalized. And I don't know, it's going to take a long time to continue to, to change that narrative. Um, and so I always want to try to tell people to switch their perspective when we have this conversation about Vegas, because you're right. People are like, oh, she's working. But yeah. that's what they'll say. And right. then they keep it moving. Right. Um, and they don't think twice about her. But she has a name. She has a face. She has a story. She probably has somebody who cares about her. Um, and she deserves to live an incredible life. And so if we start viewing it for what it is, I think we could change a lot. I think when people are in fear, in trauma, in survival, in whatever psychological state they're in, in order to endure and survive this very violating experience, they're, they're difficult to reach in that place. And I think that that creates a way of people um, letting themselves off the hook from any responsibility uh, to empathize with that person's plight. Oh, she chose this. She wants this. She deserves this. And so we create these categories of, you know, thought and, and have these categories of, oh, this, this person's in this box over here. Fundamentally, I think that part of the importance of empathizing with the plight of people who you may not be able to reach at that point is that, um, compassion disrupts exploitation. And so the idea that like, I'm not going to participate 
in this situation because I understand that what this person's going through is deeply harmful to their humanity. And um, yeah, you know, having conversations like this and it can like the, just the idea of how, how big this industry is can feel overwhelming. Mm, and at yeah. the end of the day, I think, you know, the journey that I've been on has just brings me always back to the demand side um, of like, and that's why I think your story is so powerful and other survivor stories are so powerful is helping people understand the shape and experience of prostitution and all of its nuance and trafficking to hopefully shift the culture that is currently creating so much demand. Like you said, normalizing prostitution, normalizing the purchase of sex, all of this stuff. Um, on that side of it, what can you tell me about your experience with the Johns? Who are these men? Who are the, the men who are there paying for this? What are their backgrounds? What are they looking for? How do we reach these guys? I mean, you see kind of every type of buyer, men, women, um, all ages, all demographics. Um, so that at least I did, and that could be more too because of I'm in Vegas, <laughs> right? So we definitely saw all kinds of um, buyers. And I think the most important part of this conversation is that there's times where I experienced just as much violence, if not more, from my buyer than I did from my trafficker, right? And so it's not like this guy is, it is not Julia Roberts in Pretty Woman. That's not what is happening. Uh, you may get that once every 500 clients, if you're lucky. Meaning a guy who's actually nice. <laughs> yeah. Right. And is going to give you your quota for the whole night. Right, right. Right. Like, that doesn't happen. I mean, it does, but not all the time. And it's not, they're not going to whisk us off into fairy tale land. That's that's not a reality. So you do get nice ones. You do get ones that come back um, and call you every time they're in Vegas. And then that's kind of feels nice because you know what you're going to expect. Mm -hmm you know, um, feels a little safer than somebody you just met. Um, but we can't remove the inherent violence and prostitution. That exchange of money now means I own you for the next agreed upon amount of time. Would you say that you felt that level of entitlement from these men? Oh, definitely. Yeah. They just gave me $100 or $500 or $1,000 or $1,500, whatever. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if they tried to give me $10 or $1,000. The arrogance, the entitlement, the uh, access to my body that they felt like they deserved, um, it's there. <laughs> You're just a piece of property being bought and sold. With these men coming from so many different um backgrounds were there any commonalities that you could see emptiness that's the word i'm going to use <laughs> i've never i've never been asked that question so i'm going to use emptiness um 
human connection, even if it's not healthy. Mm-hmm. Lonely. Mm-hmm. But I don't want to paint them as a victim. Right. Right. And this is where I say, like, human connection does heal. And so, like, we as humans need to be better at treating humans in a kind and loving way, whether we're talking about people we're purchasing or the guy at the coffee shop, <laughs> mm-hmm. right? Kindness yeah. and love can go a long ways. So I think there's that. I also would say that the commonality is entitlement of like, I paid you, so give me my money's worth, whatever that is. Or now I get to do this, that, and the third to you. Or I've even, you know, had uh, multiple men in the room that was not agreed upon. Um, I've not gotten my money or they gave it to me and then raped me and then took my money back, which means now I got to go even make more money. I can't just cry. I can't scream rape. How do you hold it all together in those moments? I think it's the fear. The first time that that happened to me, two men, um, held me down on a bed and raped me for hours and they did not pay me. And so when I stumbled out of the room, the realization I had is I still have to make $500 before I can go home. Or the threat of whatever's going to happen at home for not meeting the quota. So it's just unthinkable. It's a gamble. I'm in Vegas, I guess, you know, Having been through everything that you've been through and doing some of your um, academic training through college and um, how do you approach women now who are either in the life or just coming out of it? What does that outreach look like? Where do you try? Do you try to meet them? I just try to see them. I'm not trying to convince you to leave. I'm not trying to convince you that this is the best way. I'm trying to let you know that when you're ready, there is a way. Mm. And with kids, I try to work with helping them find an identity after what has happened, right? Women too, afterwards, right? I believe we really need help in in dreaming again and figuring out like what we want to do and who we want to be. I also like to work and help calm nervous systems, right? Give them techniques on how to calm the nervous system because our nervous system is also just out of whack. We're operating in fight or flight or fawn or freeze, whatever. We're in one of those states. And so we need to really start working on how to calm the nervous system. But if it's outreach and they are in the life, it's just seeing them, talking to them, hearing them, right? Every time you hear us, we heal. And it's the same for them, right? We have to be that hope, right? We have to give people that we want to show them that like, hey, there is life after this. But they have to see it and believe it and want it as well. Right. And there has to be pathways for them to do that. Right. If we can't get them to a safe place then why would I convince them to leave right now? Because that's more dangerous, right? So give them what they need. Build a relationship with them. Talk to them, see them, hear them, love them, no matter where they are. 
at that moment. If you could talk about the different elements of things that contributed to your healing. So part of that would be some of that I went into trauma drive. I'll say that first. Trauma drive was my thing, right? So let me just pretend none of this happened and let me get every degree, every award, every scholarship, every like anything that is at my hands and I can apply for or take or anything. Let me do that. I've never heard that term trauma drive. So you've been through this very traumatic thing and now you're driven to success almost to a detriment to sort of validate your self-worth is that or oh yeah I I definitely would say so right because I depended on these unhealthy relationships my trafficker what their worthiness right they gave me worthiness they made me was a worthiness that I never gave to myself right they made me feel like I was worthy but it was the love and abuse. So then the worthiness would be taken away, right? And then it would be given back for the night or the day and then it's taken away, right? And so when I got out, some of it was like, I I have to do this. I have to make it. I have to prove everybody wrong. I, I also had children who drove me, right? I wanted them to have a life different than mine. I didn't, I wanted to break the generational curses, right? So I just put my head down. I worked full time. I went to school full time. And then my children were really young at the time. So my daughter was two when I started the process. My son was nine, 10. So I just, and and in that space, I didn't have time to think because I can't let any balls fall because I got to make this happen. I got to pick him up from daycare. I got to stay up all night because that's the only time the baby's asleep. But I also had a tribe. I had people, single moms, other, my best friends, right? I, I couldn't have done it without them. They would watch my kids. I would watch their kids, things like that, right? Building a community um, helped me. But at the beginning, it was very much about trauma drive. It was very much like, I just, I have to make it happen. Plus, I wanted my family to be proud. I wanted, you know, like uh, the shame. I was trying to like, I think maybe I've never thought about this until right now, probably trying to outrun the shame too. Totally makes sense. Yeah. But you can't, you can't outrun it. Yeah. Right. I'm still carrying it sometimes. One form of performing for another, but underneath it are these deeper core issues that need to be healed. What was the original question? It was about healing, wasn't it? Yeah. So I think the, yeah. So I think first it was trauma drive. But then I think within the trauma drive, and I don't know, I don't know that there was necessarily stages or if it's all mushed together. Human connection healed me. People seeing me and giving me opportunities. People saying, come come be in my documentary or come on my podcast or you inspire me, right? Um, I started rewiring my thought processes on my own. I didn't want to go to therapy. I started doing cognitive behavioral therapy on myself. And one way I would reframe my negative thoughts is I would write something inspirational on my Facebook every morning. 
And over time, people started telling me how much I was inspiring them. And I was like, what they didn't understand was I, every time I had a negative thought, every time I felt like giving up, every time I, I didn't know what to do, I would go back and read my own thoughts for that morning. So I was inspiring people, but people didn't actually know. Like I was just trying to heal. I was trying to rewire my brain. Um, so that kind of happened. I have a mantra. It's um, continue. I met human connection. I met a, a random human at a hotel one night after I was just out with friends one night. And um, at one of my lowest points, he sent me a text and it, it told me to continue. And it said, uh, just say it out loud, love. Continue. And then he said, I believe in you and I see you and I love you. And that word, <laughs> that one word changed my life because sometimes I was continuing from one second to the next. Sometimes it was minutes, days, right? I would just tell myself, continue, you got this, right? And so I did a lot of therapy on myself um, and eventually went to real therapy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so that helped. But I think the biggest healing agent that I've had is survivor connections. Every time I get to meet a survivor, it heals me and I believe a lot of times it heals them, right? Um, that energy exchange, that love, um, and other humans really helped me heal. Well, I'm so grateful for all the work that you've invested in becoming the person that you are today. And I know you're affecting so many people's lives. As I said, when we started, just the perspectives that you shared at our screening of buying her. And um, we're really honored to have you on our podcast. And so thank you so much for, yeah, just taking this time to sit with me. I really appreciate it. Thank you. I'm, I'm honored to be here. It's been incredible. Thanks. You can check out all our podcast episodes, articles, and films at exoduscry.com and join the daily conversation by following Exodus Cry on all major social platforms.